You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy the sermon. Let's get in the Word. we got a lot to do today, um, so I hope you've had your coffee. I'm going to try to... We're going to try to work through the rest of chapter 16 and all of chapter 17. So let's put on our Bible reading pants and get to it. Uh, last time we were in chapter 16 and we saw Paul and Silas go through some stuff and they got put in prison and there was an earthquake and their chains were set free and the doors opened and they, they didn't uh, leave the prison. And instead, the keeper of the prison ended up coming to know Jesus by the testimony of them sort of staying there when this thing happened. And so we saw that occur. We saw the, the jailer and his household come to know the Lord. And from there, uh, we, we saw them get baptized. We saw their wounds get cleaned. And then we start here in 1635 uh, of Acts and it's the next day, and it says this. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let these men go. So we don't know exactly why they were only in jail one night. It could have been that they had only planned to put them in jail one night. It was kind of a warning. It wasn't, you know, they, they didn't really intend to keep them for a long time. But it also could have been that this earthquake happened because these people were relatively superstitious. They thought, okay, we beat these guys, we put them in prison, and then an earthquake happens that night. Maybe we want these guys out of here. So they send, they say, let these guys go, okay? And let's see what happens. Uh, Verses 36 and 37. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Now, Paul is pretty bold, okay? If, you don't, if you're not catching on to Paul's personality here, this might be a good indication for you. Paul is a bold guy. He's saying, listen, uh, they beat us, and we're Romans. We were uncondemned, and they can come get us out themselves. And I'm guessing that Silas is probably sitting here going, uh, Paul, let's just go, right? We don't want them coming back with the sticks, right? I don't know if you've ever been around that friend who's much more bold than you're really wanting to be at the moment. Uh, you know, they're, I want you to take this return back or whatever, and, and you're just like, just, let it, just keep the thing. I'll pay for it, whatever. I don't want to get into a thing. Here, Paul's sitting here saying, no, he knows the law, right? He knows that as Romans, it was illegal for these magistrates to have beat them like they did and put them in prison. No trial, no right of appeal, no nothing. But as Roman citizens, they were entitled to that. So Paul knew the law and said, you've got to come get us out. Now, uh, this is interesting to me because I'm really not sure. The, the first kind of question I have is, why did he say it when they started the beating? Or better yet, before they started the beating, right? Um, he could have called them out then and said, we're Roman citizens, we get a trial, we get a right to appeal, and whatever, before you can scourge us, beat us, and put us in prison. But he didn't say it then. Another question that Silas probably had for him later, if you knew the law and knew that this was the deal, why didn't you say it before we were beaten? That's at least what I would say if I was Silas. Um, but I have to assume that Paul felt at the time. Either he wasn't able to speak, it was so quick, and they they weren't given a chance to speak at all, or he felt that they were supposed to go through this persecution, and they were supposed to go through this persecution for a reason, and that God was going to work in it, which of course we saw he did. I hope that if I'm ever in that situation, I have a way out, and God says, no, stay in it, I'll stay in it, and have the courage to do that, Uh, but I think that took a lot of courage for Paul. So what did these magistrates do when Paul kind of calls them out? It says in verse 
sorry, verse 38. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So it worked. It was kind of a bold play by Paul um, because they could have just said, I don't care if you're Romans and come back and beat them down again. But they didn't. Instead, they were afraid. And now these guys have to kind of come hat in hand to Paul and Silas and say, please, will you please come out of the jail? Which is a very different thing than what was going on the day before when they were having them beat down, right? And, and so I, I don't know the answer to this, but I would guess that this gave the Philippian church some breathing room. Um, now that these magistrates, the guys who were in charge of the city, had sort of got caught in something, they probably didn't mess with the Christians there for a while. That's just my guess. Because all they'd have to do is be like, remember when you beat our buddies, the uncondemned Romans, right? And, and they probably didn't want to get into that. And so it's very possible that by Paul and Silas doing this, that they provided a lack of persecution for the Philippian church for some time afterwards. I, we don't know, but that's certainly a possibility, Okay. Now, let's see what, what happens next. Uh, verse 40. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Okay, so they leave. They're like, okay, we're going to go. Uh, obviously, these guys, they don't just want them out of prison. They want them out of town, right? They don't want to mess with this. Paul has come preaching Jesus. That's causing uproar. They don't want to mess with it anymore. They want them to just go, just get out. And so they go back to Lydia. If you remember, at the beginning of chapter 16, Lydia gets saved along with her household. They get saved and baptized. This is where the church in Philippi has sort of begun. And so they go back. They say hey to the, to the brothers and sisters in Christ there, and they encourage them in the Lord, and then they take off. They take off. And so uh, let's start into, and by the way, it says, uh, they encouraged them and departed. We remember, if you remember, Luke had been involved. He had come to Philippi with him. Now he's not using the word we, he's using the word they, meaning that Luke is staying, okay? Luke is likely staying here in Philippi. Paul, Timothy, and Silas are probably going on to the next place. Uh, so we're going to start chapter 17. As we start chapter 17, we're going to read three sort of different scenarios, three different places that Paul goes, three different ways that people react to the gospel as he goes in. And as I'm going through them, I just want you to think about yourself and about the way that you reacted when the gospel was first presented to you, when the truth of Jesus Christ was first brought to you. How did you react? Because there's three very distinct ways that we see people reacting here. We're going to walk through them, and I want you to just to be thinking about that. So it's map time first, okay? We're heading out of Philippi. I'm going to read verse 17.1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So let's get our map up. As you remember, uh, they started in Antioch, which I think is over on the right side of your map there, and they've gone through all these places. For those of you who have been through those sermons, you've known these different places they've gone, and they eventually came to Philippi, which is all the way on the other side, and then you see them going down to Thessalonica, okay? Um, they go down to Thessalonica, and they pass through a couple cities on the way. It doesn't talk about them really stopping there or doing anything there, and so why not? Why Thessalonica? You know, God used uh, Paul, the Holy Spirit worked through Paul and Silas and Timothy and these other brothers and sisters in Christ to spread the gospel across the entire world in a shockingly short amount of time. Remember, they didn't have the internet. 
okay? So this was, this stuff had to pass by word of mouth, by letter, by things like that, and it passed shockingly fast. And part of that is because they're going to these big cities. Thessalonica is the biggest city in Macedonia. It's the capital. It's where the governor sits, okay? This is a big city. It's influential, and Paul's on his way there because he wants to get upstream. He wants to get to where the gospel can go, and if it goes, it has an impact, it has an impact that's big. Now we have things like the internet. We have other ways to uh, be effective. Um, but where we are here in the Portland area, this is upstream compared to some other places, okay? Where if you went there and made a big impact, it wouldn't necessarily spread out. Things tend to spread from big cities out into the other cities. And so God is leading them to Thessalonica. This place sits, uh, the current city of Thessaloniki sits on the same site that Thessalonica was, if you get a chance to visit. Let me know how it is. Um, and Paul does what he regularly does. He goes to the synagogue. We've talked about why that is. Why does Paul go to the synagogue first? Well, several reasons. The people in the synagogue are worshipers of the one true God. That's who they are, right? And so there's a connection automatically. They're not Christians. They're Jewish, but they know the scriptures. They worship the Lord, they revere the scriptures, and they're looking forward to the Messiah. So it's an obvious point of departure for Paul to come in and first go to those who have something in common with him that he can then try to preach the word to those people. And so let's look at the next two verses and see uh, how that goes. It says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. All right, so here he is. He goes three Sabbaths. It's at least, at least three weeks he's in here uh, in the synagogue. We don't know exactly how long he was in Thessalonica, but at least three Sabbaths. He's reasoning with them from the Scriptures, okay? Paul is coming in and he's saying, listen, you know the Scriptures. You've been learning these since you were very young. Let me show you what they actually say about the Messiah. Okay, these people are looking for the Messiah to come, but remember, their mindset is the Messiah is going to come and kick butt going to kick the Romans out. It's going to break our chains and set us free. That's what the Messiah is coming about. And Paul's like, no, no, listen. You've got to walk through here. The, Jesus is a conquering king, no doubt, and that's going to happen. But first he's got to come and save you from your sin. The Roman thing is actually a much smaller thing than saving your soul, than renewing your spirit, than giving you life in this way. And so, but he's got to, he's got to preach this to them, and he's got to preach it to them from the scriptures because that's what they know. Now, you can read some of uh, the scriptures that talk about the Messiah as having to come and suffer and die. It, some of that's in the Psalms. If you read Isaiah, uh, last part of 52 and through 53, you'll read all about the, the prophecies many hundreds of years before Jesus that talked about the Messiah having to come and die. But they didn't like that usually, right? So Paul had to work through that. He had to reason with them. He had to go through it. And, of course, he would have explained the miracles, uh, the teachings of Christ, a witness to the resurrection, that that had happened, all of those things. Okay, and he goes on and he says, uh, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, is the Messiah. The word Christ, the word Messiah, same word, okay? He's saying that's who Jesus was. So here, here I come, I'm coming into your synagogue. They've probably heard of Jesus. Uh, you know, this didn't happen in a corner somewhere. Jesus was, was not a small deal. It's probably spread. They've probably heard something about Jesus, probably heard something about the hundreds of people who were going around claiming that he rose from the dead and that they saw it. So it's not like they pro probably had no idea. But here's Paul. He's coming in. He's reasoning with them from the Scripture to show them why Jesus is actually the Messiah. All right, let's see how they reacted to that. Verse 4. 
And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Well, that's great. Some of them were persuaded. The Holy Spirit worked powerfully through Paul, through his teaching. As a result of that, he's drawing people in their heart. They come to know Jesus Christ. That's awesome. It says a great multitude. I don't know how many that is. It's a lot. A lot of people in the city of Thessalonica were now believers, okay? It says uh, of the devout Greeks. We know about these Greeks, some of whom were proselytes, right, actually became Jewish, but some of these people were God-fears. They didn't actually go through the whole process to become a proselyte and become Jewish, but they had given up all their idols, and they were worshiping the one true God. They would go to the synagogue. They knew the scriptures, that kind of stuff. And then we have all these leading women who are joining Paul and Silas, coming to know the Lord. Now, for those of you who have been with us in Acts for a while, you might be able to guess what the others did, okay? So let's just see. We'll just we'll cut to it. Uh, verse 5 and 6, it says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. So these uh, Jewish folks who did not buy into it, they were not persuaded. They didn't think that the scriptures were pointing to Jesus. That's not their, that was not what their thoughts were. They all of a sudden get sort of envious as these multitudes of people start to follow Jesus. These multitudes of people who are going after the Lord, they get envious. They get jealous. They don't like it. They have sort of their traditions, their way of doing things, their structures, and they don't like the fact that, this, that Jesus has come in. We've seen this before. This is not new. And as a result, they go and they grab all these evil people these evil men, and they, and they go and they get a mob together, and they rile them up, and then they go and they attack this house. Now, I, you know, why does this always happen to Paul? Um, it's rough, and, and I'll tell you why it happens. Because when you bring Jesus to people, you bring a choice, and that choice is us, me, or Jesus. And that is a tough choice for a lot of people, and it's a choice that causes real division. And so there's a certain number of people, a great multitude of people who said, Jesus, yes, Jesus. And there was a certain number of people who said, no, no, us, me. It's got to be me. And the ones who say me, they get very upset about the ones who say Jesus. They get very upset about it. And so they want to run that out of town. So they go, um, Jason uh, is probably a Jewish guy. The name Jason actually is a Greek uh, form of Joshua or Jeshua, Jesus. Uh, so that may have been his name originally. He may have been a Jew who had a Greek name. Um, and this mob comes to his house. They're looking for Paul and Silas. So you have to put yourself in this situation. Imagine you're at home having life group, small group, and an entire mob of people, the whole city has come ready to, to cause some trouble. That would be tough. <laughs> that would be a difficult thing to go through. And they didn't find Paul and Silas. It's one thing they found Paul and Silas about, these are the guys who were saints. No, they didn't find them. So they just grabbed Jason, who had been nice enough to let Paul and Silas stay in his house, and some of the other uh, Christ followers, and just dragged them out of the city. Okay? They dragged them out of the city. They bring them to these guys, to these magistrates, these officials, and they say, these guys are the ones who have turned the whole world upside down. They've turned the world upside down. Now, um, of course, Jesus did not turn the world upside down. Jesus turned the world right side up, right? 
The world was already upside down. The world is upside down. Jesus comes, and, and for the believer, for the Christ follower, he turns the world right side up. It only seems like upside down if you like standing on your head. And that's the, that's the nature of how we are. Good is bad, bad is good, right is wrong, and so on. We get, we get messed up, and it feels like we've, the world's been turned upside down when Jesus comes into our life. But the truth is he's putting things right, not setting them upside down. And so it's a powerful, powerful statement about what the Holy Spirit has done through the early church here, through the early church, that people would say they've turned the whole world upside down just some years from Jesus and his resurrection. That's an incredible statement about the power of the Holy Spirit to work through people like you and me, like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Mark, right? Like Lydia, like, like these people here who are just regular people, this small group of people who just a few years ago, don't forget, they're running for their lives, running for their lives. And now people are talking about them turning the whole world upside down. God has literally changed the world through them. And so the next time that you feel unimportant or that you feel like you can't do much, remember that God has done amazing, incredible things. He has changed the world through people who just were willing to be faithful, just willing to be faithful. And this city is in an uproar because they've turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. So that's, that's an amazing thing. Um, all right. So one thing to remember before we get through this little part here is don't forget to pray and thank the Lord every day that you don't live in a place where you have to worry about a mob coming to your house and dragging you to the city. There are places in the world where that's true. And don't forget to pray for those people because there are places where this still happens. There are places where worse things than this still happen for the name of Jesus Christ. Don't forget to thank God that you are at a place where we can come here today. We can come to this place and we can worship the Lord and no one is threatening to drag us away. So that's an amazing thing. All right. Uh, one interesting fact to point out about a Greek word that's used here. And I know you love it when I get into the Greek words. Um, the word politachas. I just wanted to say it. No, I, there's a reason why I'm telling you this. Uh, <laughs> It's fun to pronounce, though, if you can. <clears throat> Plus, if you have anything in your throat, it gets that out. Scholars point uh, to the use of this word back in the day. They would point to the use of this word and say, this proves that Acts was not written by some guy named Luke in the first century, but rather was written in the second century because this word did not appear in the inscriptions that they had found in the ancient world until the second century. And so they're saying, well, who, the person who wrote this, Luke, whoever wrote this, wrote this book and used the common language of his time. Oops, he forgot that this word wasn't being used for these kinds of officials at this time. Now, this is a big problem, okay? Because if, this, if they're right and that word wasn't used and it was really written in the second century, then Luke couldn't have been who he says he is hanging out with Paul in the first century. But they're not right. They're not right because since then there's been tons of archaeology and scholars uh, who, have, who used to say that about Scripture just turned out to be dead wrong. They found over uh, or found 70 different inscriptions, okay, using this exact term, most of them from Macedonia, which is the region where we are now, and over half of those in Macedonia were in the city of Thessalonica, which is where Luke was. So instead of it being something proving that the Bible wasn't written when it was supposed to be written, so on, it actually goes not only to prove that it was written when it was supposed to be written, but that Luke was so detailed that he used the very specific word that they used in that particular area to refer to magistrates. Okay? So here's my thing about Scripture. 
Go ahead and bring whatever you got. What happens is over and over and over and over, archaeology comes back, and as they look and as they look and as they look, they prove that it's right, that it's right, that it's right, that it's accurate, that it's correct. This is why I've told you about the, the scholar who wanted to prove that it was all wrong, who wanted to prove that it wasn't real, and went and researched Luke and went and did the archaeology and so on and became a Christ follower because of how accurate Luke is as a historian. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Okay, so let's look at the next few verses here, okay? Um, Now that we know that it's accurate, that's good. We can keep going. All right, verse 7. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right. Romans were not allowed to predict, okay, to predict that there would be another king that would come and take over Caesar, okay? This was a law that was put out. No one was allowed to prophesy or predict or say, the emperor's going to die on this day or this new king's going to come. This was a big deal, okay? This was a big deal. Uh, the, the, the Caesars had put these decrees out, and so the people in the cities knew that they were not allowed to have that kind of thing going on because the Caesars got really upset. They didn't like it when people predicted that someone was going to come, some other king was going to come. And so certainly Paul would have preached Jesus as Lord. Of course, he wasn't talking about Jesus coming and taking over and being the next Caesar. Nevertheless, they were able to use this to stir up the crowd, and the city would have been troubled because they would not have wanted to be known as a city that was being insubordinate to Caesar. That would have been a bad, bad deal for them. And so they were troubled. They were concerned. Now, apparently cooler heads prevailed because basically they took bail. They took a bond from, from Jason and these folks, and they let them go. They let them, they let them take off. And so uh, that's where they went, but obviously things are still probably pretty dangerous for Paul and Silas. So in verse 10, we see this. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So they go and they get Paul and Silas and they're like, you know what, um, we're not that into mobs coming to our house, uh, being dragged off and so on. We'd like this to sort of calm down and they're still going to be after you. We want to protect you. And so why don't you guys take off? Let's go do it at nighttime. That way no one will see you and we'll take you off to Berea. So let's get our map up because it's map time again. Uh, we're going to have a lot of map time today. Uh, Thessalonica to Berea, it's about 47 miles southwest of Thessalonica. That's where Paul travels, Paul and Silas, okay? These are not quick trips. These are trips that they would have taken without a car or a train or an airplane, okay? This would have taken a little while. Uh, Traveling apparently at first at night, and they get to Berea, and where do they go? They go to the synagogue. That's where they always go. So let's look at verses 11 and 12. These, this is the people in the synagogue of the Jews in Berea, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, or that word could also be noble-minded, okay? It's, it's definitely a compliment to them. Um, the, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So what do we have here? The people were fair-minded. They were noble-minded. They didn't have a bunch of preconceived stuff. They were, they were really wanting to know the truth. So when Paul comes in, he's got an open form. Go ahead and say what you've got to say. Now, it wasn't just we're going to accept whatever you have to say. They had these things out, and they were going through. Okay, you said that. 
you know, okay, that checks out. That's true. It says that. And they went through and they studied. They had an open mind. They wanted to know what was true. And Paul preached the gospel. He preached Jesus Christ. And as they searched the scriptures and studied it, they came to know Jesus. It says, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? It's there to say, because they were fair-minded, because they studied and, and sought out the scriptures, they became Christ followers because they did those things. The Bereans are this great example in Scripture of those who are serious, who are seeking after the Lord, who are fair-minded, noble-minded towards it, using their minds, studying the Scriptures, and coming to know the Lord. And this is our job as believers, okay? We're going to talk a little bit about that later, but our job as believers is not to fear ideas. It's not to fear ideas. It's not to fear what other people have to say. It's not to fear science. It's not to fear those who say things negative about Scripture. It's not to fear any of that. It's to hear what people have to say, use our minds, study, see what the Lord is saying, and come to believe the things that are true. That's what we do. That's what we're very serious about. And the Bereans are praised for this. Noble-minded. That's a nice thing to say about somebody. Uh, Paul has no trouble proving the truth of the message of the gospel but he does need people to listen and then study to prove that it's true. He's not looking for them to just take what he says at face value. I'm not looking for you to take what I say at face value. No one in this church in leadership who's doing any teaching is looking for you to take it at face value. We expect you to use your minds to discern, to study, to think about it, to make sure that it's true. You know, my job is to preach the word. Your job is to learn the word, and your mind is just as important as my mind in that process. And the Bereans showed that. They showed that. They listened and they studied to see what was true. They searched the scriptures. Jews and Greeks believe. Prominent women and men. This is a great outcome. A great outcome in Berea. These people come to know the Lord. Okay. Let's look at what happens next. You can probably guess. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. All right. So the people, the Jews in Thessalonica who had been envious, who had gotten worked up, now find out that Paul's there. And instead of just leaving well enough alone saying he left Thessalonica, they're like, no, we're going to go get him out of there too. So they come down causing a ruckus. Let's get a mob together. Let's get these guys out of here too. They're successful, and Paul has to bolt once again. He's got to be wise, right? You don't sit there and cause more trouble for the Christians in this church that just got started. If you're the source of contention, you've got to go. So he went, and he took off, and he goes to Athens. He leaves Silas and Timothy there. All right, so let's take a look at our map again because we, now we're going to Athens. And if you follow it, uh, we came down from Berea now. He goes out and comes. You can see how he gets to Athens. You've probably heard of Athens before. This is a major, major Greek city, okay? Athens is the seat of Hellenistic or Greek life. And yes, it was now under Roman rule, but it was still very, very prominent. In fact, very, very prominent to this day. If you go to Washington, D.C. or other places like that, you're going to see something that looks very much like what you would have seen in Athens and then in Rome. Okay, the architecture, the, even, even the idols. If you ever get a chance to go to Washington, D.C. and go in all these buildings and just look at how many 
idols there are. Of course, people aren't worshiping them, right? But they are uh, images of these Greek gods and these Roman gods everywhere. Yeah, Moses is there with the Ten Commandments also, things like that. But there's all, there's all this imagery. There's all these imageries of these same idols that this time they were worshiping as, as idols, and they were everywhere throughout this city. Okay, Athens was known for, for this idol worship, okay? Uh, the Greek gods, you've seen Percy Jackson, right? Those guys. Um, those are the guys that these, that these uh, Greeks are worshiping. And they're also known to be philosophers. They're very smart. They're very smart. They're thinkers, okay? And they love to talk and talk and talk and talk. Okay, I don't know anybody like that. Um, but <clears throat> don't laugh so much. All right. So let's, let's walk through this time with Paul at Athens. Verse 16. It says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul is just not one to just like wait, right? He's like, come, come with haste, Timothy, Silas. We're, on this th- we're in this thing together. Come, come, come to me. Come on, let's go. And he gets to Athens and it's like, ah, I'm just going to start, right? He, just, he wants to get going because his spirit's provoked. He's sad. He's sad that these people, it's not just the idol worship, right? It's the fact that it's death. That's a lack of truth that they're following after things that aren't going to lead to anything good for them, that he knows about the life in Christ. Paul's not just doing this because he has to do it. This is not a Sunday school project for Paul. Paul is out preaching the word of God because it is so powerful in him and his desire to see people come to know Jesus Christ is just overflowing. This isn't something he does because he has to do it. This is something he does because he can't stop himself from doing it. He wants to preach the gospel. And so he sees that these guys are... Um, worshiping these idols, his, his, his spirit is provoked in him. It says, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So this is normal, right? Paul goes to the synagogue. He's reasoning with the Jews. He's reasoning with the Gentiles. He's even going just into the marketplace, right, where everybody's hanging out and he's having conversations. Maybe he's doing a little street preaching. I don't know exactly what's going on, but he's sitting there. He's reasoning with these people. He's talking to them about Jesus, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So he's probably in the marketplace. He's talking about Jesus. A couple of these Epicurean Stoic philosophers. These were major philosophies of the day, somewhat misunderstood in popular culture, but they were, they were a couple of the big philosophies that were going on at the time. Okay, they're hearing Paul talking. They're like, oh, hey, it's something new. He's saying something new. He's saying something different. Let's, let's bring him to the Areopagus. Let's hear what this guy's got to say. So he goes, okay, that he heads over there. These people are just, uh, they just love to just talk. If you read uh, ancient Greek philosophy, Socrates and so on, you'll hear about some of these people that Socrates would talk about who were sort of like this. They sort of argued for the sake of arguing. They sort of talked for the sake of talking, and there wasn't necessarily a lot of good in it, but they felt good about it. They felt smart. They felt good about themselves. So, so here goes Paul, and they say, let's hear some new thing. Well, you tell Paul to preach, Paul's going to preach, right? So here he goes. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Okay, so what does he start with? When he goes to the synagogue, what does he start with? He starts with the scriptures. Because why? Because they know the scriptures. Now he's in Athens among all these Greeks, okay? They don't know anything about the scriptures. So he can't say, listen, in Isaiah 52, they're going to be like, who's Isaiah? They don't know who that is. They don't know anything about the scriptures. So he cannot use the scripture directly to preach the message of Jesus to these people, or at least he doesn't see it as the way that it's going to work. So he doesn't. So he starts with what they know. And he says, hey, I can see you're very religious. That's for sure. You got idols all over the place. And as I'm walking through, I saw this idol, and, there, and it was just an idol, and it just said to the unknown God, like, like it was the catch-all. Like in case we forgot anybody, here's this one. You know, throw a little something to the unknown God just in case. You know, you don't want it to rain tomorrow, whatever. They were so, they had so many gods for so many things and gods that represented all these things. And it was just like, just in case we missed one, we're going to put this statue up here so that that God doesn't get upset with us. And he says, I saw that. I saw this to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now he's not saying that this was a statue of God. Okay. The one true God. He's using it as an entree. Okay, as a, way to, as a way to connect with them. He's saying, the fact is, is that you admit that you don't know everything. By taking the time, effort, and energy to put this statue up, you're saying, we don't know everything about who God is. We don't know everything about what's true concerning God. And so he's saying, since you don't know everything, let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you the truth. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far off from each one of us." For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. I want to stop there for a second. Now, I, I told you, Paul is not opening up the scriptures and reading from them. But everything that he's saying is from scripture. Everything he's saying is true. There's one God. He's the one who made everybody. All of us from one, from Adam and Eve, essentially. That he's the one who's appointed times and places. That he's the one who's sovereign. That he's in control. All these attributes of who God is. And then, to connect with them even more, he quotes a couple of their poets, okay? Which tells you a little something about Paul's education. This guy was educated. Super educated that off the top of his head, he could quote these Greek poets to these guys in a way that made sense, in a way that connected them to the real truth. Obviously, he doesn't think those poets had the real truth. He's saying that these things that they said are actually true if you put that to God. In him we live and move and have our being, right? In God, that's true. And whatever the poet was talking about, it may not be, but their poet said it, and this is a way to connect to them. So here he is. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. In other words, all these statues, all these temples, all these things that which were everywhere in Athens, this is not how you worship God. If he's as powerful as I'm saying he is, if he made us, he doesn't need us to make statues to him. This is obviously not the way that you worship a real God, the real God, the only God. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Okay, he's bringing it home now. He's saying, listen, 
This is all nice. I'm connecting with you. But now what I'm telling you is, now I'm telling you, now you're responsible. God may have overlooked some ignorance here. You grew up in this city. You grew up with all these things. But now, guess what? You asked me to come and bring the truth, and I brought the truth, and now you're responsible for it. And you need to repent. You need to turn away from all this. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You better repent because there is judgment. If you continue to go after this gold, this silver, these idols, these stones, these things that you made, after you've been told the truth, there's a judgment coming for that. There's a judgment coming for that, and you need to repent. Now, how do they react? And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. Let's, let's hear some more. Come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Let's put this off. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. All right. You've got three scenarios. Three cities where Paul is gone. Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Every one of them had a very different way of connecting to what Paul was preaching. Every one of them. Now there's descriptive and there's prescriptive. We've talked about this. Descriptive is just saying, this is what happened. Prescriptive is saying, this is how we ought to be. Now, I think it's pretty clear that the way that the, the Jews who did not come to the Lord in Thessalonica acted and the way that the Greeks who did not come to the Lord in Athens acted were clearly descriptive and not prescriptive. Berea, clearly prescriptive. This is the way we should act. In all of these places, people came to know the Lord. The ministry that, that the Lord sent Paul to do was, was effective in all of these places. And in fact, of course, eventually, as you probably know, the whole world there, all of these people, tons and tons and tons of these people came to know the Lord. But at this time, they reacted in different ways. In Thessalonica, Paul upset the apple cart because they liked their traditions. Because when he went into the Jews and spoke to them, while some of them willingly saw that what he was saying was true and followed Christ, others of them said, you know what? I don't think they outreasoned Paul. Let's put it that way. If they had bested him, no one would have come. If somebody would have stood up and been like, no, Scripture says, ba ba ba," then a multitude of people would not have been like, yeah, I'll change. I'll, I'll throw, throw all this and come this direction if they had beat him in the argument. So they didn't beat him in the argument. That didn't happen. But some of them still did not want to come, would not allow themselves to be persuaded. And the reason they didn't want to allow themselves to be persuaded is because they liked the way things were. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we've always done it. We think the Messiah is going to be this thing. I'm not, I'm not letting go of that. It doesn't matter if you show it to me, you reason with me, you show me through the scriptures. I'm not changing my thing because this is the way I've always done it. This is my tradition and I'm going to stick to it. And it was enough to get them so angry that they got a violent mob together. Now, in Athens, it's a different story. Athens, they're syncretists, okay? When I say syncretists, all I mean is this. There are some religions that you can add anything you want to it, okay? Throw a little of this in, throw a little of that in. Um, Hinduism is like this. You can go and, and talk to at least some Hindus who would say, yep, we worship this God and this God and this God and this God, and we'll just add Jesus to the list, right? He's just another God. Well, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Jesus is not just another God. He is God. He's the only, there's only one God, right? But these Athenians, they were used to, as, as we discussed, hey, you're very religious. You got gods all over the place. They're syncretistic. All roads lead to heaven, right? Ever heard that? Does that sound familiar? 
Always. There can't just be one way. That's arrogant. We're very smart. We're very smart people. We're intellectually very prideful. And so when you come to us, we're going to relativize everything. And when you start saying repent, when you start saying that Jesus rose from the dead to prove that we need to repent because there's going to be a judgment, listen, we're too cool for that. We're too cool. We're too smart for that. And so they rejected it. In one case, the persecution was physical. In one case, it was actually social. We don't hear anything about them wanting to beat Paul up. What did they do? They condescended. It was condescension, right? They ridiculed. Who, what does this babbler want to say? What is this nonsense he's speaking? Some did that, and others said, you know what? Come back tomorrow, or maybe the next day. They put it off. They postponed. There was the condescension, and there was the postponing. Now, I don't know for you how it was when the Lord started to work in your life whether or not you had one of these reactions. Hey, I've always done it this way. I'm going to keep doing it this way. What, I, what I'm doing works or pretty much works or sort of works or probably really doesn't work, but I don't care. Whatever the case was, and I reject it. Or whether you were, I'm too smart for that. I condescend to that. Or whether you were, you know what, wait till tomorrow. Let me just get my 20s done first. Because that sounds like something I'd like to do without a lot of rules. You know, whatever it was, wherever you were, I think... I've probably been in every one of these positions at one time or another. Remember, there were people saved from all these groups. And in the future, certainly I'm guessing that some of these people who were condescending or who were trying to attack Paul or whatever did eventually come and be converted to the Lord. So just because somebody reacts this way doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue, that we shouldn't be faithful, keep preaching, keep preaching, keep preaching, because they likely, Lord will work, can work, and does work, and brings people like me to him. And so for us, though, there's a couple things. One is this. When the people in your life, when you become a believer and a Christ follower, are usually going to react in one of these ways, okay? One of these three ways. The first way, they're angry. They're envious. If you guys saw the, the movie Case for Christ, um, you see this played out in, in, the, in Lee Strobel. It's, it's a sto- true story, probably-ish, right? It's a movie, so. But his wife comes to know the Lord, and what, what you sort of see is Strobel sort of gets envious. Hey, we used to do things. He liked the traditions. He liked the way things were. And then it was like, oh, I'm being replaced by Jesus. I'm being replaced by that. You don't, you don't need me. People want to be needed. We all know this. You don't need me anymore because now you've got Jesus, now you've got your church, now you've got these things, and they get envious, and they like the traditions, and they react in anger or spite or bitterness, something like that. Then there are those who actually are truth-seeking and want to hear, and you tell them about the Lord, and they study it, and they come to know him, and there are some of you sitting right here because somebody else in this room went to you and said, hey, Jesus has done this in my life, and you're like, all right, let's check it out. And you've been saved and baptized, maybe right here at Acts Church. And that's a great thing. And then there's the other ones. And we see a lot of this because where we live is not that much different than Athens. The intellectual superiority, the, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you believe that. Don't you know that smart people don't believe that? Don't you know? Certainly, some of you have seen that. Now, the fact is, is that all people are smart people. It depends on how much work you want to put into it. 
I would venture to say, we here put a lot of work into it. A lot of work into it. We don't just believe these things on blind faith. I could go on and on about that and have, but I won't right now. The point is that there will be some who are going to react that way no matter what. They want to have their intellectual pride. That's more important to them. And then you've got the postponers. Yeah, I'll come to church maybe next week. They're not against it. They're not envious. They're not even condescending. They're just postponing. Maybe next week. Maybe the next week. Maybe the next week. That's a, come back tomorrow. We'd like to hear some more about it. Well, we'll hear more about it later. There's going to be all of that. And then there's the way that you need to deal with it. Because the gospel doesn't just come in that time when you come to know the Lord. The Lord continuously teaches you, continuously grows you, continuously matures you. And each time, there's, there's that choice. Me or Jesus? Every time. You're right? Whether it's I, I went from becoming a Christ follower to really dedicating myself to be at church every week to giving to serving to stopping doing this, stopping doing that, starting doing this, starting doing that. All those things that come as you mature in the Lord, every one of those rubs up against the me. Right? At least it does for me. And every time I have these options, I can say things are going fine the way they are. I like the traditions. This is the way things have always been. Do you know how hard it was for people to move from playing an organ as the only way that church music went? Which, by the way, a great organ is beautiful stuff. But going from that to what Hunter Croft was doing up here today, you think that in 1942 he could have walked into the local Baptist church and been like, no. <laughs> would not have happened. Would not have, ha- would not have been okay. In, in fact, it would have, they would have accused it of a spiritual issue. They would have spiritualized the music and said that it was not the way that things should be because they have their traditions. The way they do things, this is the way we've always done it. We have to be careful too because someday, someday, somebody may want to play country music, okay? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm kidding for those of you who love country music. Um, It's not not necessarily my thing, but that's okay. Um, Some of it's okay. The bottom line is, is that Whatever the Lord does and however he wants to work, you've got to ask yourself this. Is it unscriptural? Is the Lord using it? If it's not unscriptural and the Lord's using it, your tradition is probably not a spiritual one, but a human one, which there's nothing wrong with. But you can't be like these guys. Our traditions are so important, they wouldn't even hear the gospel. Your tradition is not so important that God can't move you to the next step and to the next thing and to give a little bit more and to stretch a little bit more for him. Don't be that person. And don't be the other person. Don't be the Athenian. Well, I'm a believer. That's true. Um, I, I'm, I'm intellectually satisfied in that and so on. But don't ask me to be a Jesus freak. Don't ask me to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm too cool for that. Remember, the, the, the Athenians, their whole punishment, their whole persecution wasn't physical. It was social. Let me just tell you, that's real too. That's real too. Don't be so afraid of the Athenians that you don't move forward in the Lord. And don't be like the Athenians who said, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. When God's calling you to do something, it's now. It's go. It's now. It's the Lord said this, so they went. Not so they thought about it, so they said, Lord, come back tomorrow. We got to be like the Bereans. Be like the Bereans. Be like the Bereans. We gotta, we gotta take, we gotta always be open to what the Lord is doing in our lives. Check it with scripture. In a, in, a good, in a good church, you should have a multitude of counselors to make sure, yes, I feel like the Lord's leading me this way. Scripturally, it lines up. The counselors around me, those who are pouring into my life and disciples are saying, yes, and I go. I don't let tradition get in my way. 
I don't let fear of social circumstances get in my way. I'm like a Berean. I'm noble-minded. I listen. I study. I act. That's who we need to be. That's the lesson that I have from Acts 17. And these three things, I see it, I see it, you see it, I'm sure you can connect to it. I'm sure as we've been talking about, you've thought about different people, different circumstances, and yourself, and how you've reacted to these things. In every case, Jesus is saying, listen, just be faithful. Be willing to give up you for me. It's always going to turn out great. It's always going to turn out for the best. It's always going to be the best thing in the long term. The long term is eternal. So let's think about that. Let's be like the Bereans. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.